One of the very hardest things to get, or the toughest things to live into, or the most difficult things to really hold on to about the life of faith is that a Christian lives for the sake of others. A Christian lives for the sake of others. Now, that's not my own personal Idea. I didn't just pull that one out of my hat. I didn't take it from some soft-minded, sentimental self-help book on spirituality. This idea is central to, foundational to, what the Bible teaches us about the nature of the Christian life. Uh, this is the difference. Understanding this, living into this, is the difference between simply liking the idea of Christianity and actually walking the way of Jesus. Listen to the emphasis that the Apostle Paul puts on this idea as he writes to the Christians at Philippi long ago. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, translation, if Jesus has made any real dent in you, if, if, if anything about your encounter with Jesus Christ and his way has actually impacted you, then make my joy complete, says Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, with whom do you suppose? Who is he asking us to be of one mind with? Is it with one another? Is it with people like us? Is it with people who like us? Is it with people we like? No. Paul is saying, have the same love, the same spirit, the same mind as Jesus. As Jesus Christ. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, he goes on to say, or vain conceit. In other words, Dan, don't be self-focused. Don't let it be all about you. You don't like that in other people when you meet it. Don't go there. That whole I'm best, that me first, that who's taking care of me mentality, that what's in it for me, there should be more for me orientation, is something I want you healed of. God is saying through the voice of the Apostle Paul. That very mindset is what got human beings in trouble in the first place, Paul would tell us. It's been our issue since Eden. It's been wrecking human life ever since. It's creating damage all around us right this minute. The 5th century bishop, Augustine of Hippo, said that the essence of sin is, and I quote, the incurvatus in se. That's Latin phrase meaning the curving in upon oneself of human nature. This tendency to take a life that is meant to be lived openly and to turn it around and aim it all towards ourself. My feelings, my opinions, my needs, my position. This tendency to curve inward is the fundamental problem. Is the fundamental issue at the root of so many of the difficulties of our time. As Christians, this should not be our orientation, Paul is telling us. We don't need that 
whole self-focus anymore. Christians know that they are beloved children of the almighty God of the universe. Christians have seen the most brilliant and beautiful being larger than the universe itself proclaim them so beloved that he would suffer and die for them. Christians know that they are heirs of a glorious heaven, even beyond the struggles and strivings of this life. Christians have won paradise's powerball, is what the text is really telling us. We We are inheritors of the glories of God himself. We have an identity and a security that is absolutely unimpeachable. We can get sick. They can fire us. We can be attacked. We can be disliked. We have an identity and security we can never lose. And while it takes a lifetime to fully live into that particular reality, if you begin to get this, then it changes you. It it, it turns you from that grasping self-focus and liberates you to now turn your focus outward towards others. Just about a week ago, uh, several of us here on the church staff were interviewing a potential new staff member who said something really striking. This particular individual said, because of Christ, I've retired from myself. I've retired from myself. I have gotten off of the ego ladder, he said. And there was something about the calmness of this person's disposition that made me believe it. He just didn't seem all that self-focused at all. He said, now I'm just a servant. I was on the ladder. I was once all about myself. Now I think of myself as essentially a servant. In other words, now I'm curving out. My life is curving out. The Apostle Paul understood that this shift of orientation that he was describing is a challenge for all of us. And I think this is why he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi. He appreciated the extent to which all of us struggle with retaining that particular mindset. In fact, the word mindset suggests something important. We have to set our mind on it. We'll constantly slip back unless we keep setting our minds on this different way of looking things. We'll always be tempted to go back to the natural, sinful, human way of seeing life. We'll, we'll feel this pull to make our school days and our work life and our family uh, experience, our marriage, our politics, even our church life, a lot about us, about our preferences, our needs, our desires. But, says Paul, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In humility, choose to value other people above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. Paul is not saying you don't matter. Remember, you're the Powerball winners of paradise. You matter. You matter profoundly to God. You are heaven's royal children. You have identity and gifts and wisdom to offer this world that truly counts I'm not saying don't think less of yourselves. I'm saying think of yourselves less. Choose to think of yourselves less. 
as Jesus models. And that's the critical thing here. It's as Jesus models for us. And Paul goes on and says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, in other words, who could have properly and rightfully and appropriately chosen to have everything curve back in toward him, to have everything be about him. He could have righteously chosen that. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he did not view, Jesus did not view his supreme position, his heavenly privileges, his supernatural power as something to be used mainly to secure more advantages, more benefits for himself. Rather, says Paul, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Why would he of all people have curved himself out in this way. It was for the sake of others. God lives for the sake of others. Wow. A young mother got up one morning and decided she was going to make a delicious breakfast for her small children. She had two little boys, Kevin and Ryan, five years old, three years old. And she set about making a marvelous pancake breakfast. Well, she was almost done, and then the decision had to be made, who gets the first pancake? The boys began to clamor, me, 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 me first, me And the mother saw this brilliant opportunity to give one of those marvelous moral lessons that parents are always looking for opportunities to pass along to their children. And so this is what the mom said. Now, boys, hold on a minute here. Let me just tell you, if Jesus were sitting right here at our table, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I will wait. The boys were just struck silent by this. Uh, observation from their mom. They sat there quietly for a moment. And then the five-year-old Kevin, obviously very moved, turned to his younger brother and said, okay, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) That's the truth, isn't it, about us? This whole Jesus thing sounds great until there are pancakes at stake, right? Until it truly demands something of us, until it calls us to use our position, our privileges, our power toward others instead of toward ourselves. When the pressure is on like that, how are we really going to live? You know, this comes up for me all the time in my 
comings and goings through life. Every time I pull out a credit card at a department store or in front of an internet screen, every time the plate goes around in worship, I've got to ask myself, what's my life going to be ultimately about? What's the pattern of the way I use my resources going to be mainly about? It, is it a life of getting, curving in, getting, or curving out, giving? What's it going to be for me? Or we face this every time we're in conflict at home or in our workplace or maybe out even in the political sphere these days. Am I going to focus solely on my feelings and my preferences and my party or is there a legitimate hurt or hunger on the other side that I could somehow serve in a meaningful way? We choose it every time we come to the church building, in fact. Uh, This is a constant theme in our church's life. Is the purpose of all this to get my needs met or, or, or is it to help me become a more equipped to help the needs of others get met? What is it going to be for us? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said that life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? That's the most persistent and urgent question. What is it exactly that you're doing for others. If we're genuine disciples of Jesus, not merely admirers of him, then that is the persistent and urgent question for us. And it is. It's why we keep taking the gospel into all the world. It's why we seek to help other people come to know Jesus. It's why we invest in the mission partners we do all around the planet. It's why we are involved in the ministries of compassion towards the poor and the under-resourced in our cities and, and around the world. It's why we seek policies and politicians that advance biblical values that we think could create more thriving for the most number of people. It's why we never stop working for justice in the systems and the structures of our world. It's why we never stop fighting human trafficking. It's why we go out of our way to notice the Martians, the strangers, the aliens, the people of another race or color that are around us and offer them a place at the table. It's why we do these things. This outward curving mindset is our distinctive brand. It's who we are because a Christian lives for the sake of others. This is what a Christian does. Are you one of them? Do you have the same mindset as Christ Jesus? Nowhere is that mindset more persistently and urgently needed today than in this arena of race relations. That's what this series has been about. It's about bringing the unique capabilities and orientation of the Christian life to this very troubled zone of our society's life. As we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks, we're living in a time when racial tensions are inordinately high. We're living in a period in history where, despite massive, unprecedented prosperity in some sense, there are still whole segments of our society that can't get out of the ditch on their own. As our country is becoming more and more diverse, there is an increasing risk that we're going to descend further into a dog-eat-dog mentality, a a social Darwinism of sorts, 
that it's going to leave nobody really better off over the long haul. And so here again, I think the voice of Dr. King is a provocatively needed voice in our time. Listen to something else he said. From time immemorial, people have lived by the principle that self-preservation is the first law of life. That's the Darwinian thing again. Self-preservation, survival of the fittest, is the first law of life. But this, I contend, is a false assumption. I would say, says Dr. King, that other preservation is the first law of real life, precisely because we cannot preserve self without being concerned about preserving other selves. The universe is so structured that things go awry if men are not diligent in their cultivation of the other regarding dimension. I cannot reach fulfillment without thou. The self cannot be fully self without other selves. Now, Dr. King didn't pull this idea out of his hat. He got that from the Bible too. This is the biblical worldview he's describing. It may not be the the popular worldview today. It may not be the, the politically correct worldview today. But this is the biblical worldview. The Bible says that God created one family. Out of which would grow all kinds of families. He did this in his infinite wisdom. He had this one family that would become the fountainhead of a multiplicity of other families of different colors and cultures. God did this because he loves the variety. We know that about God. He did not create everything gray. It is the best hair color, I grant you that. But it didn't make everything this way. He wanted the the multiplicity, the abundance, the fecundity of life to reflect the glory of his amazing dynamic being. And and, and so he wove into this from the very beginning a a web of of interdependence between people. He, He created human beings to be helpmates to one another, the book of Genesis says, to be stewards together uh, of this great creation. And this interdependence and mutuality was to become one of the greatest sources of joy and influence in his creation. You know the story, you know that sin ultimately blinded human beings to that interdependence. And before long, uh, we, ha- we see human beings uh, ag- uh, warring a- against each other. You see Adam and Eve, the helpmates, turning against each other and now blaming each other. Uh, you-, you see brothers, Cain and Abel, against each other. And Cain saying, am I my, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for what happens to him, right? You see the blindness... This lost sense of a family asserting itself. Yet closing our eyes does not change reality. We can close our eyes to the interdependence and the mutuality of life, but it doesn't change its fundamental reality. And Dr. King reminds us that whether we're black or brown or yellow or blue or green or something else, We are linked to one another just the same. It's in the structure of the creation, he says. I would contend that that human ecosystem 
is now becoming even more connected than ever before. You and I are living in an era in world history in which we're being thrown together, tied together, bound together with others like no other period in history. Just as the proverbial butterfly, a wing in China flapping, is said to have over in microwaves alter the climate in Chicago, blame, uh, blame the other side of the world, I suppose, for the cold spell we're having right now. Just as the, the World Wide Web is now linking uh, youth from Peru to Peoria in a common youth culture, just as the global market system uh, makes what happens in Indonesia uh, relevant for what's going on in the economy of Iowa. We are tied together in this massive web of interdependence that we ignore, that we ignore to our peril. We're bound to others in a way that it is devastating to close our eyes to and that is delightful to discover if we can appreciate the value that the multiplicity God wove into things really brings. Again, this is not somebody's idea. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the biblical worldview. Paul unpacks it, uh, again, brilliantly in his letter to the church at Corinth this time. In that particular letter, Paul is speaking to a very sophisticated congregation. Corinth was the Chicago of its day. It was a cosmopolitan city. Paul saw the Corinthian Christians struggling to maintain the same mindset as Jesus Christ. They're beginning to have conflict with each other. They're beginning to uh, exercise an attitude of superiority towards certain members of the community. Uh, They're having the normal kind of human problems where we turn back in upon ourselves. And so Paul writes this brilliant chapter 12 of his first letter to the church at Corinth. And this is what he says. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body had your gifts, Dan, where would the body be? Where would it be without the other gifts? Uh, If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body. God has placed them intentionally, put them there. Uh, Every one of them just as he wanted them to be. He's created this multiplicity just as he wanted it to be. Uh, There should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. For if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. Friends, what God wanted for the church, he wants for the world. What God is describing about the church, he wants for the whole planet. In fact, the church is the frontier of the moving border of the kingdom of God that is meant to ultimately transform the planet. But if we can't understand this, if we can't find the value in all of the different parts, the different colors and cultures, 
that how do we ever carry out the mission to the rest of the world? I've been suggesting over the course of our conversation these last couple of weeks that that you read the book Gracism by David Anderson. I don't know how many of you have actually picked it up. We keep restocking our bookstore so you can. But, But in this marvelous book, David Anderson takes this passage from 1 Corinthians 12 and breaks it down into specific behaviors that you and I can apply in our relationship with those who are different from us. So if you, if you take nothing else from this series, buy the book. Read the book. It's short. It's profound. It's life-changing. I want to, however, just leave you with one final thought to close out this series. A one final gracist behavior, as it were. One more creative action that you can take to help bring God's grace to the issues of race in our time. I want to encourage you to dare to dream of what we could be together if we finally and fully opened our eyes and saw what God sees. I don't know if you ever watch movies. I do. One of my very favorite ones of recent years is a a Denzel Washington film entitled Remember the Titans. Any of you seen it? Remember the Titans? In this particular story, and by the way, it's a true story that's being retold in the movie, uh, Denzel Washington plays a a gentleman by the name of Herman Boone. He's an African-American football coach, a high school football coach, who is brought in to coach a um, high school team in Alexandria, Virginia, in the year 1971. Uh, Most of you are too young to remember that period of time, but I will tell you that in 1971, in that part of the border between the North and the South, uh, schools were just really getting integrated. And um, some uh, legislation had been passed, and the schools in Virginia were being uh, further uh, redistricted, And uh, suddenly, in this one town of Alexandria, this high school, for the very first time, was taking uh, African-American and white students and really pressing them together. And and for these kids, this was a new experience. Not just for the kids, but for their coaches, their teachers, and the whole community. Well, as you can imagine, it wasn't easy. It it, it was not easy at first. And, And there were all kinds of tensions at multiple levels in that community. But the story of Remember the Titans focuses in on that particular football team and on the actions of two emblematic figures in the team. One of them is a fellow named Gary. He's a white student. He's an all-American football player. He's the captain of the team. And the other is a gentleman by the name of Julius, an African-American uh, defensive star. And uh, they, they immediately, these two boys are banging heads they are, the, the tension between them is representative of the tension, interracial tension in the whole community and certainly within that team. And, and it's very, very difficult. Uh, Coach Boone decides to do something radical. He takes the whole team away from the town. He takes them off to a, a rural retreat place and, and, it, and he puts them through a two-week-long athletic camp there. And he decides to take... Uh, the black and white players, and pair them off as roommates. And Gary and Julius are roommates. And it does not go well. Uh, There's a lot of 
bickering and, and infighting, and eventually it gets even worse, and the conflict that's below the surface becomes wildly over the surface, and a racial brawl breaks out in the locker room one day, and, and there are white students that are, that are intentionally missing blocks and letting black students just get hammered to the point of serious injury. And uh, it's just a terrible situation. It is not getting better. Finally, there's this climactic encounter between Julius and Gary. And Julius approaches Gary and he says this, you're the captain, right? And Gary says, yes, I am the captain. And Julius says, well then, why don't you tell your white buddies to block for Rev, who's the African-American running back? Why don't you tell them to block for him? Because they've not blocked for him worth a plug nickel all year. And you know that. You know that. You want me to wear myself out for the team, says Julius? What team? Gary fires back. That's some kind of attitude. That's some kind of attitude. And Julius quietly says, Attitude reflects leadership. That night, Gary does some serious thinking. And and he ponders how he's been using his position, his privileges, his power. And he is convicted that maybe he uses them the wrong way. That maybe it is meant to be used for others. The next day at practice, one of the white players misses a block again. And Rev, the running back, is hammered again. And Gary steps in. And he holds the white student accountable and says, we'll have no more of this. And with that leadership, a subtle change begins on the team. And it begins to multiply from player to player to player. The divided sides start to work together. They begin to appreciate the different parts of the team and the role that each of them plays to the whole. And they start moving past themselves and towards serving the whole body. And the ragtag titans slowly transform from an ordinary team into a championship team that is glorious to watch and whose legacy would go on for decades in that town. True story. True story. But here's the even more interesting part of the story, of the historical fact. It wasn't just winning games that motivated this change. It wasn't. And there's this moment when that becomes very clear because shortly after winning a very key game, Gary, the white player, suffers a terrible car accident that renders him paralyzed for the rest of his life below the waist. And the whole team comes to the hospital, but they're forbidden from going into where he's lying in critical condition. And yet Julius decides to push through the door. He goes into the hospital room. The nurse sees the black face, and she immediately says, hey, hold on a second, only kin allowed in here. And a voice comes from the bed. It's Gary. And he says, it's okay, Alice. It's okay. Can't you see the family resemblance? Can't you see it? He's my brother. 
And as Julius comes over to the bedside, Gary says, you know, when I first met you, I was scared of you, Julius. All that bravado, the truth is, I was threatened by you. I was just scared. I only really saw what I was afraid of. And then, as tears stream down his face, Gary confesses, but then I saw, I saw. I was just hating my brother. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we know that we are a long way still from the achievement of that dream Dr. King had that there would be a day when people are only judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. And we're further still from that day of final redemption when our eyes are fully open and we recognize behind every diverse color, class, and culture that we now see the one human family that you have always seen. But we want to keep walking toward that bright horizon. And so we're asking you, God, to help us develop the same mindset as Jesus. So that we do not consider whatever position or privilege or power that we have as something to be used for our advantage alone. Move us, we pray, to use who we are, what we have, as you have, for the sake of others. Make us the gracists needed in our time that your body may more and more reflect the unity for which you, Jesus, prayed and that we might each be instruments that helps more and more others find the love and the honor, the capacity and the hope for flourishing that has been your intent from the very beginning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.